Uh, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're going to look at this for our passage. We're going to jump right into the scripture today. Of course, the resurrection account is in all four of the Gospels, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. But today we're going to be spending our time uh, from Matthew chapter 28 today. And so if you have your Bibles open there, if not, the scripture will be on the screen today. Verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there, and they went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and looked at him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if it comes to the ears of the governor, I will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spreading among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we spend time reflecting on this event, reflecting on your resurrection, that your power, that your life, that your spirit, Lord, would just be poured out on your people again in a new way, in a real way. Lord, even open our eyes to see the truth. Give us ears to hear what you want to speak to each heart today. 
You are alive. You are risen. You are on the throne. You have poured out your spirit. You have gathered us here today as your people. You send us out into the world to make a difference for you. So help us to know what it is you would have us to do, what it is you would have us to say, not just today, but every day, moment by moment, as we are your hands and feet extended, your light shining in a dark world, the light of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This event, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it is not only the main point of uh, the, the, the Gospels, all four Gospels, of course, have this story in them, but it's also the main point of the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament, though it is 27 books, though it is written by nine different authors with a staggering amount of consistent, consistency, all of the authors declare one message, that is that Jesus is not in the grave, but that he has risen. Jesus is alive. They, they, they all proclaim this. They all believe this. They all teach this. And so the whole point of the New Testament is, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? What does it mean that he, he died for sin? What does it mean that he's ascended into heaven? What does it mean that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father? What does all of this mean? And so for book after book after book after book, 27 books of the New Testament, explain to us, what does this mean? And they all declare without any variance, without any contradiction whatsoever, that on that first Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Though he had been laid in a tomb at the darkest moment of human history, when humanity rose up with one voice and declared that we had rejected God's Son, Jesus going to the cross, dying for the sin of the world. Though that was the darkest moment, the brightest moment was yet to come. And that was when Jesus on that first day of the week rose again. Christ has risen. Not just from the grave. But he, he has risen all the way into heaven. Right now, Christ Jesus is seated on a throne. He, he has not been defeated. In fact, the, the cross was not a defeat. It was through the cross that Jesus won his victory. And now Jesus in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Jesus says, over all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So Jesus rules. Jesus reigns over all nations. There is no authority that is not subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. We have to take Jesus at his word. So that's all governments, all nations, all kings, all power, all authority. Jesus is Lord of all. Amen. Amen. And we as Christians, we... We proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. This was the great proclamation of the, uh, the Christians in the, the early church, the first century. This proclamation, Jesus is Lord, is what got the Christians into so much trouble and, and why they suffered so much persecution under Rome. 
Because under Rome, the, the, the Roman state, they said that the state is Lord. The government is Lord. Caesar is Lord, is what the, the common uh, declaration was in the Roman Empire. You had to declare that Caesar was Lord. If you did that, you could worship any pantheon of gods you wanted to. You could worship Zeus. You could worship Artemis. You could worship whoever you wanted as long as you said Caesar is above all. And the Christians came along and they said, um, we can't say that. We can't make that declaration. Why? Because they, they were gluttons for pain. They enjoyed being impaled on spikes. No, because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They knew. They knew that even as the Roman government persecuted them, killed them, martyred them, that the Roman government was still under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so they could face death with no fear because Jesus had defeated even death. No fear in death because death has been defeated. Now, seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus offers forgiveness of sin and salvation to all who will place their faith in him. And history will be concluded when Jesus returns and he will establish his eternal kingdom. He will take what is rightfully his, take his place as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible says that on that day, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. We're just ahead of the curve here. We're just on the, we're on the very beginnings. We're at the very forefront of where all of history is going as we declare that Jesus is Lord. Listen, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, there's this phrase going around that you, we want to be on the right side of history. Have you heard this? That the church should try to be on the right side of history. The church knows where history is going. It's going to the place where Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. We already are on the right side of history because we see clearly already that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over all. And so we compel people. I compel you today. Submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Submit to Jesus as Lord. History will be concluded. He will return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You might as well do it now. You might as well get on with it. You will be there one day. Bow the knee today. Get on with Get on with your life and the destiny God has for you. Make the most of it. Today is the day of salvation. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus the central point of the New Testament, but his resurrection is literally at the center of all of human history. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, it literally splits time in half. 
All of human history up until Christ is known as B.C. Now, I know in those indoctrination centers that we call public schools today, they teach you that means before common era. Sorry. B.C. means before Christ. Before Christ. That's where that comes from. All of human history up until 0 A.D. is called B.C. before Christ. That's where that came from. And I know that they teach you, I don't know what A.D. means anymore, but, or the, the A.C.E., or who, who knows. But I, you can tell I went to school before things went totally insane. But A.D. is Latin, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. Our calendar, human history, is literally split in half. Not by Confucius, not by Buddha, not by Mohammed, not by any other wise man or guru that's ever lived. By Jesus Christ, the God-man, God-made flesh, come down from heaven, lived among us, showed us the way, died on the cross to pay the price for sinners. No one is more famous than Jesus Christ. No one is more well-known than Jesus Christ. He, he is literally the most important and towering figure in the history of the world. Today, today, billions of people assemble across the world today who believe and declare that Jesus is Lord. Christianity is the biggest thing in the history of the world. There's no greater movement. There's no greater uh, uh, party. There's no greater uh, idea that has captured the hearts of humanity like Christianity has. For the last 2,000 years, Christianity has been the dominant force of human history. We divide our history by the life of Jesus Christ because when Jesus came, everything changed. Everything changed. The separation that exists between humanity and God removed. The penalty, the price for sin and shame removed. That now humanity can enter back into fellowship, relationship with God. Our created purpose, it changed everything. Through the church, through God's people, God is, is literally recreating the world as more and more people acknowledge and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, the resurrection... What did it accomplish? The New Testament gives us so many things that the resurrection accomplished, but I want to look at, in brief today, seven things. Seven things that the resurrection accomplished for us. The first is peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that, Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God today because Jesus rose again. You see, all of everything I'm going to share with you today, all of this hinges on the resurrection. All of it hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, we do not have peace with God today. If Jesus did not rise for the dead, I, we have all put our faith in a dead man. What good can that do for anyone? If Jesus did not rise, he was just any old person. But through his resurrection, 
It shows us that everything that Jesus said about himself was true, that he wasn't any man, that he was the God-man, and now he is the mediator between God and man. And so now, through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with God. It only comes through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the barrier that separated humanity and God, it is only bridged through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus paid the price for sin. Only Jesus hung on the cross for your sin. Only Jesus died the death humanity deserved, earned the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And only Jesus rose on that third day to give us new life. It's only Jesus. He's the only way. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what makes Christianity so offensive. If you would just change that one little word from the way to a way, no one would have any problem with us. But we side with Christ. We take him at his word. He's the only one that rose again on the third day. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Christians are labeled as narrow-minded. Yes, we are. There's, there's one way. It's Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. He is Lord. Submit to him. He, he, he paid the price for your sins. He loves you. He is the way. He's not just a way. There's not a buffet of options on how to be reconciled to God. There is one way. It is the Son of God. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He alone is the mediator between God and man. And we now have peace with God. Because of sin, we had alienated ourselves from God. We had rebelled against God. We, we had separated ourselves from the holy and righteous God. We had made ourselves enemies of God. Humanity through sin has declared war on God, who is righteous, who is just, who is holy, who has a perfect and righteous standard. And we say we're going our own way. We've declared war on God. But through Jesus, we are no longer at war with God. We have peace with God. Peace with God. The second thing that we have, the result of the resurrection, is that we have now fellowship with God. Not just peace, which is great, but we don't just have a ceasefire with God. We have fellowship with God. 1 John, 4, 1 John 1 verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We don't only have peace with God, we have fellowship with God. We have closeness with God. We have intimacy with God. We have friendship with God. Amen. You can be God's friend through Jesus Christ. 
From time to time, I, I hang out with people. Uh, people who, yeah, people in general, but people who know people. Do you, do you know anybody who knows someone? You know, I mean, like, knows, like, someone. Whenever you hang around someone who knows someone, they always tell you about it. They always drop those names, right? Don't you love those name droppers? You know, they just casually, oh, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so the other day. Like, as if that makes me think they're a, a big shot, you know. But let me tell you something. Nobody has more followers than Jesus Christ. No, no, nobody is trending more today than Jesus Christ. J Jesus has been trending for the last 2,000 years. He, he doesn't come in and out of style. You, you, you want to be friends with the biggest thing going around? You want to be part of the biggest movement in the history of ever? It's through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. Nobody bigger than Jesus. Nobody more followers than Jesus. Nobody more powerful or renowned than Jesus. And we can be God's friend. The Bible says that Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. Friendship with God, fellowship with God, intimacy with God, closeness with God because of the resurrection. The third thing, moving beyond peace and, and moving even beyond fellowship is what the Bible calls adopted by God. That's where you go beyond just laying down your arms and not being enemies and moving beyond not being enemies to actually being friends to moving beyond friends and now we're part of the same family adopted by God. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself, not uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, some people get hung up on that predestination word, and it's really a great word. It means that God chose you. That's what it means. God chose you to be a part of his family. And that's the way adoption works. Orphans don't choose who their adoptive parents will be. The parents choose who they will adopt. And that means today... If you've put your faith in Christ, it's because God chose you. God said, I'm making them part of my family. These are going to be my kids. Adopted to himself, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This Friday night after the Good Friday service, a, a group of people hung around really late and... Um, at the church and they were all going out to dinner and I asked them where they were going and when I heard where they were going I said why don't we all just come to my house and eat some food I'm not going to tell you where they were going but um, anyway I, I didn't want to go eat there so I said hey everyone just everyone just come over and 
So they all came over, and it was great, and we had a wonderful time, and we ate, and we had fellowship, and it was wonderful. But around 11.30 or midnight, I said, okay, fellowship time is over. It's time for you to leave my house. <laughs> and fellowship was over, and they left. But do you know who stayed? My kids. My kids. Why? Because they're part of my family. They're part of my family. They belong in my house. Listen, peace with God is great. Fellowship with God is awesome. But we have something even better than that. We're sons of God. Adopted by God. Part of his family. We belong in his house. Adopted by God. It says we're adopted as sons. Adopted as sons. Is that intentionally written that way to leave all the ladies out? No. But it's written that way because what Paul is talking about is he's talking about a legal status. A legal status. And as an adopted son, you would share in the inheritance of your father. You see, a, a young woman who was adopted, she would be married off, and when she was married, she would go on to be a part of another family. And so when the parents passed away, she would not receive the inheritance because she's part of a, another family now. But as a son, we have an inheritance. That, that's not denying that women are important to God. No, what it's saying is that it actually elevates both men and women to the status of sonship to receive an inheritance from God. What it means is that everything Christ purchased on the cross is yours, belongs to you in Christ, in Christ, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Number four, purpose from God. Purpose from God. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, we have a purpose in God. We have something to accomplish, some stuff to do for him. When we come to Christ, it gives our life meaning. It gives our life purpose. It gives our life fulfillment because we now work for him. We don't just live for ourselves anymore. We live for God who purchased our lives, who made us a part of his family. Living for yourself is the most empty, hollow, worthless kind of life to live. You will find if you only live to please yourself, you're living for no reason, for no purpose, that there's no fulfillment, there's no lasting joy in only pleasing yourself. We, we don't work for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We live for God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died for all, 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That means whatever age, whatever station we are in life, whether we're in school, whether we're in college, whether we're in the workplace, whether we work in the home, whether we are retired, wherever we are, whatever we do, we work for God. We work to accomplish His will. What this means is we don't live for our own glory, for our own pleasure, for our own renown. We live for the glory and the pleasure of God. And this, this gives meaning, this gives purpose to your life. When you start living for a purpose beyond just am I happy right now. We live for God. It sets us free from the spirit of this age, which is just live for yourself. What you will find is if you live for God and, and you live for his glory and you live to serve others as, as he did, you will find the boundaries of your life, the border of your life expanding, growing. You will find the riches in this life, the richness of life, there is a riches that transcends money. There is a riches that transcends dollars and cents. It's the fulfillment that comes, the joy that comes from living a life, not in service to yourself, but in service to God and others. We have purpose in life through the resurrection of Jesus Number five, we are filled with the Spirit of God. We are filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus ascended into heaven. He poured out His Spirit upon His church. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. This means that we carry the presence of God everywhere we go. It used to be that the presence of God was only located in one place, in the temple, in Jerusalem. But now God's spirit fills his church, fills his people. So that you don't have to travel thousands of miles to a holy place. No, we worship a holy person who has poured out his spirit upon the church. God's spirit not just in one place, but God's spirit now through his church covering the globe. The earth filled with the glory of God. The spirit of God. We carry the presence of God everywhere we go. This means that at any moment, at any time... In any exchange and in any interaction, God's Spirit can move in ways that, that we would not even know or, or expect or could even explain. Too often we're so busy just getting about our life and getting about our day. We need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit because we carry God's Spirit with us everywhere. There are people, souls all around us all the time that need a touch from God doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to call them to repentance and bow the knee to Christ while they're serving you chips and salsa. You don't have to do it like that. Just last week, just last week, the lady asked me in the drive-thru, 
how are you doing today? I said, I am blessed today. I'm blessed. When I got to the window, she was crying. She said, thank you. I, need, I, I needed to hear that. I said, I'm blessed because I know God and he knows me. She said, me too. I, I just, I needed to be reminded of the blessing that we have. Look at it. Again, I don't, I'm not putting myself up on a pedestal. All I did was say, I'm blessed. Guess what? You can do that too. You can do that times one million. You can do something so much better and greater if you will let the Holy Spirit of God lead you, guide you. His wisdom, His, his insight, His presence with us everywhere we go. His Spirit leading us, His Spirit guiding us, His Spirit helping us. The Holy Spirit is the helper. You ever need help? Anybody out there need some help? Look to God. Ask him for help. And he will help you. He will help you. He is the helper. You don't get named the helper for not helping people. My kids ask me for help all the time. And you know what I do when my kids ask me for help? I help them. I always help them. Now, I don't always help them the way they want to be helped. But I help them. I give them what they really need. The number one thing my kids ask for help for is the number one thing we tell them almost every day is to clean their room. Clean your 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 room, clean your room, clean your room. I need help, I need help, I need help. Really? Because you, you made the mess without any help. You're, you're able to get all of these toys out and dump them on the floor without any help. You were able to throw all of the clothes from your drawer onto the floor for, I don't know what you were looking for, without any help. You really need help to clean your room? You can't do it by yourself? I can't do it by myself. I need help, I need help, I need help. Okay, I'll help you. Now, my kids don't like the way I help them. Because I go up there, I say, okay, I'm here to help. And you know what they expect me to do? They expect me to clean the room, start picking stuff up. I don't do that. I say, I'm here to help. Pick that toy up. Get that one there. Get this dirty diaper off the floor. What in the world? Take, take all, separate the clothes, take all the clothes, the dirty ones, go over there, go throw them to your mother, uh, the clean ones, let's put them back in the drawer. Here, I'm here to help. And they say, oh, dad, I thought you were going to help me. I am helping you. I say, you can do it. You can do this. I know you can do this. I'm on your side. I'm here to encourage you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Let's go. We can do this. I'm here to help. Sometimes we ask God for help and we don't really want his help. We just want him to do it. Sometimes when my kids ask me for help, I just go in and lay on the bed and read a book. I say, pick that up, pick that up. They say, you're not helping me. I say, yes, I am. You can do it. Come on. I know you can do it. And just my presence in the room is the difference between that room being clean and not being clean. And likewise, we have the presence of God, the Spirit of God, the helper. Now, sometimes he'll tell us things. We need help. I need help, God. Okay, do this. He'll lead us. He'll guide us. He'll 
put that still small voice and he'll, he'll, he'll show us that next step. And we'll say, oh, I don't want to do that. No, forget that. That's, no, no, I, no, I want real help, God. And he convicts you of something. And he says, well, what you really need is to go apologize to your wife. No, I'm not going to do that. She needs to come apologize to me. We, like little kids, don't know how to receive the help. But if we will step out in faith, he will lead us. He will guide us. He will show us how to walk through this life filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit only poured out after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Number six, we have the power of God. The power of God. Along with the Holy Spirit comes God's power. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We have the power of God. Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power over sin. Power to live out the purpose that God has for us in this life. God doesn't leave us to, to do things in our own strength. We can't do it in our own strength. But he gives us his power. Not our power, not our strength. We must lean on the power of God. And number seven, number seven, we have eternity with God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the best gift that anyone could ever receive. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. Life eternal. We know what the wages of sin is. We know what it produces. But there is grace. There is a free gift of eternal life through Jesus. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. The resurrection means that death has been defeated. The power of death, the sting of death, fear of death, gone for the child of God because we have passed from death to life. Eternal life. Life that never ends with God. But the key the key to all of this is belief. Belief. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes. Faith in Jesus is the key. If you want to have these seven results applied to your life, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there is no peace with God. There is no fellowship with God. There is no adoption into God's family without Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. You must put your faith in him. Put your faith in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And if you do that, 
All of these promises are yes and amen in him. Faith in Christ is the key. Faith in Christ. Belief in Christ. What's interesting is you read the four accounts in the Gospels of the resurrection of Jesus. What you will find is not only is the, the, the amazing event of, of Jesus conquering death, but also there are many who doubted. Many who did, did not have faith. And in all four accounts, it talks about people who, who doubted the resurrection. We see in Matthew's account where the, the eyewitnesses, the, the guards who had been there at the tomb, the, the guards who saw the angel like lightning dressed in clothes, white as snow, who came and rolled away the stone and Jesus risen from the dead, the guards went and told the chief priests and they didn't believe. They invented some story. They hardened their heart in unbelief. They paid them off to be quiet. In Mark's gospel, it's the same thing. The women come to the, the disciples and say, Jesus has risen from the dead. We've seen the Lord. And they say, you must be hallucinating. What was in your Wheaties this morning? You know, they think they've gone crazy. In Luke, Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. He says, you who are slow of heart to believe. He rebukes them for their unbelief. In John's gospel, John 20, we have the greatest example of the most infamous, if you will, example of someone who doubted. In fact, he's become known and, known and synonymous for this one moment, this one failure he had. Now his whole legacy for all eternity, because it's written in the Word of God, he's now known as Doubting Thomas. Right, we all know Doubting Thomas. All, all the other ten disciples saw Jesus, and Thomas wasn't there. I guess they had sent him out to get some fish fillet or something, and... Um, he comes back and they're like, we saw Jesus. And he says, you must be smoking the same thing the girls have been smoking. Like, what? I, I don't believe it, he said. I don't believe it. And then Thomas gets kind of explicit. He says, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hand, I will not believe. So Jesus shows up again. This time Thomas is there and Jesus goes, here you go, Thomas. Go ahead, I'm right here. Put your hands in, put your finger in my hole. I got it right here. Thomas sees Jesus and he falls down on his face and he declares, my Lord and my God. Thomas goes from the one who doubts the most to the one who sees the true revelation of who Jesus is. Thomas should not be known as doubting Thomas. He should be known as believing Thomas. Thomas went from being a doubter to a preacher. Thomas went from someone who doubted Christ to someone who even laid down his own life for his faithful witness of Christ. Thomas maybe started as a doubter, but that's not where he finished. And you too might be a doubter. You may have come in here today a doubter. You may have doubts. You may have questions. You may have, have, have uh, things that you don't understand about God. Listen, I understand that. 
Belief in Christ, it, it does not mean that you have all of your questions about God answered. Belief in Christ doesn't mean that you have every little point of doctrine figured out. Belief in Christ doesn't mean that you don't have, have concerns about what it will mean to follow Christ or, or the implications of what all of this means. And belief in Christ doesn't even mean that you don't have questions about things that happened in your past and how could God allow this and allow that. Listen, everything I just described, those things are at work in my life. I don't have every point of doctrine figured out. I don't understand why God has done everything he's done in the past. I don't understand fully all of the implications of what it will mean for me and for my family, for me to follow Christ in the future. I don't understand all of that. But underneath all of that, what it means to believe in Christ is that at the very core, at the very bottom, there is this bedrock of faith that says in spite of all of that, in spite of all the questions, in spite of all the doubts, in spite of everything else, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose on the third day. I believe he is seated in heaven and will return one day. I believe. Listen, it's not about figuring out every single little tiny thing. We live in this world of what about-ism. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? Listen, put all of that to the side. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? I believe. The question you must answer is, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? These, these seven results of, of the resurrection, they only apply to those who believe. Don't live in doubt. Don't harden your heart. In Matthew 28, it says that there are those who saw Jesus risen from the dead, but some doubted. Some doubted. Having seen Jesus risen with their own eyes, they still had unbelief in their heart. What does that tell us? It tells us that unbelief is not a, an issue of, of answering every little question. Unbelief is not a, an, an issue of seeing with your own eyes. Unbelief is a condition and state of your heart. It's a spiritual condition. But if you will, like the young man who wanted his son to be healed, came to Jesus and Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. And the, the man said, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. If you will take that stance, if you will take that attitude and say, well, I don't know about this and I don't know about that, but I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sins and rose again on that third day. I call him Lord. Listen, if you will cry out in faith, believing in him, all of the promises of God will be yours. All of these effects of the resurrection will be applied to your life. Peace with God, fellowship with God, adoption into God's family, eternity with God in heaven forever. Amen. And then step by step, day by day, God will lead you. God will help you. He will guide you into the purpose and the plan that he has for you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We believe in him. Lord, we do not trust in our own self, in our own way, in our own ability to clean ourselves up or to fix ourselves. Lord, without you, we are nothing. Without you, we are lost. The wages of sin is death. But with you, the gift of God, eternal life is ours today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us, help us to see clearly the truth of the gospel. Help us, these words that we've heard today, let them not just go one ear, in, in one ear and out the other, but Lord, let them sink down deep into our hearts and produce a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of eternal life. That faith would come by hearing the word of God today. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. There's not a magic formula. There's not a magic prayer. You must believe. You must believe. Father, I pray that you would birth faith within hearts today to truly, fully believe. Lord, it doesn't mean that we will walk out of here without any questions. It may mean that we walk out of here with more questions than with what we came in here with. But Lord, we choose today to believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap today.